Hello and welcome to Spirits of the Law, a podcast about the law and libations. I am Matthew Naylor, uh, your host today, and I am joined, as always, by Sarah Lehman, the founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group, of which this is a production. Now, we have a bit of a different format that we're uh, going to be sauntering into today. Uh, we had a Basically, we got some comp tickets to the Vancouver Writers Festival masterclass whiskey tasting. Thank you very much to the Vancouver Writers Fest. And so we got to go and taste seven whiskeys. Uh, and so along with our whiskey flights, we're going to bring you some news bites. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's get underway. Let's do it. First off, BRBN, Okanagan Spirits. Uh, this is a... 40%, $60 corn and barley whiskey out of Vernon and Kelowna. Uh, now, here's a little bit of, of law for the uh, whiskey lover in Canada. Canadian whiskey uh, doesn't have to be aged as long as scotch, for example. Uh, it must be aged for three years and a day. So technically, we only tried six whiskeys and one alternative whiskey, but we will, you know cross that bridge when we come to it. Mm -hmm. uh, almost all of them were BC Craft designated, uh, which means that 100% of the agricultural inputs must be from BC. Uh, what did you think of this first one? BRBN. I wrote beside it, meh. I just thought it was okay. Um, I wrote that it was smooth tasting, but it was kind of boring. So it definitely didn't have any complex flavors uh, for me. It didn't really linger on the palate. It wasn't memorable. It was kind of just meh. Yeah, uh, I, I think it kind of scorched my palate on this one. I like I got that kind of taste of porridge. Uh, it was a simple long-ish finish. Uh, kind of like baking spices, had a bit of a scotch style, but uh, wasn't like outstandingly complex, especially compared to some of the ones that we got to try later in the evening. Uh, you know, still very drinkable though, and I think about mm. middle of the road based on what we what we tried that day. Yeah, it was okay. I mean, at $60 for a bottle, I'm not sure that I would invest that money into it just because I think it's something that wouldn't really, you know, do the trick in terms of memorability if you want to drink. All right. Well, having downed our first glass, let's move on to our first story. Mm -hmm. Hunted Game. Now, I don't know if people know this, but Hunted Game is largely uh, illegal in Canada to serve in restaurants for commercial sale. Uh, and this is, is partially one of the reasons why we don't see a lot of Indigenous Canadian cuisine. There are two provinces where it is possible to serve hunted game commercially. One is British Columbia right here, but according to the Ministry of Forests uh, and Range, it very, very rarely comes up. Uh, the other is Newfoundland, where there has been a bit more uptake of the uh, chance to sell hunted game. Uh, but it's an, it's an interesting thing because there are a variety of, of reasons why uh, governments have stated they're not allowing hunted game in restaurants. Yeah, and I actually didn't know anything about this. Um, and I didn't know that, you know, when I go to a restaurant, like say, you know, for instance, Wildebeest here in Vancouver, there's lots of all kinds of exotic meats and things like that on the menu. 
that they're pretty much all farm raised. Um, they're just kind of being passed off as being wild game. Um, so that's an interesting little tidbit for foodies out there. Um, you know, I guess that some of the reasons why uh, the government, government in their infinite wisdom has decided to uh, prohibit the sale, commercial sale of wild game is first of all to prevent the depletion of the species. And there's lots of parallels that are drawn between, you know, this and uh, the fishing industry. We don't all of a sudden want everyone in Canada to be demanding wild rabbit and then we have no rabbits left. <laughs> Although I don't think that would ever happen. I, I think, you know, as someone who has been to the University of Victoria at some point during the rabbit plague, I think that the rabbits are going to be okay of, of all the things. Uh, yeah, even if you go to Richmond, there's a lot of rabbits hopping around out there. Um, so that's one reason. So maybe, maybe we start with the rabbits. <laughs> maybe we start with the rabbits. I mean, there probably are some species out there that could become critically endangered if we were hunting them commercially. So that's probably not desirable. Um, but yeah, but I, I think I think there is a place for this, and mm -hmm. I think that like based on the harvest, uh, we harvest animals. We don't mm -hmm. like hunt them; we harvest them. Mm -hmm. uh, we like if there was a restricted number of commercial uh, licenses, and particularly ones that were um, possibly open to indigenous people, mm -hmm. um, there would be a way for that cuisine to make it in a limited fashion to commercial restaurants. Mm -hmm. uh, like, yes, it would be, you know, au cuisine, but uh, it would still be a indigenous type of Canadian food that we don't normally get to see uh, or taste. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that that would be fantastic. And I think there is a way to get around it to make sure that population numbers are preserved and that we strike that very nice, delicate balance, but it would just take some work. And it's also important for us to draw out that Indigenous aspect. You know, um, as a Canadian, I don't think that we have a type of food here in Canada that we can call distinctly Canadian. Although we have regional cuisines, you know, for instance, in Quebec and Newfoundland and things like that, uh, you know, we don't really have this strong sense of Canadian cuisine or Indigenous cuisine. So perhaps opening up some commercial sale for hunted meat would allow us to really highlight that and even market it um, beyond just Native Canadians. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, and while there are possible health concerns that uh, are associated with like the dressing of, of wild meat. I think, mm -hmm. again, as you say, they can all be overcome. Uh, and I think we should all, you know, look at our respective governments and see if we should uh, be writing to our ministries of natural resources to tell them that we would like to see some moose on the menu. Yeah. What was on the menu <laughs> was Wyatt. Yes. Uh, so Wyatt, a uh, legend distilling uh, whiskey out of Naramata. Mm -hmm. It's wheat and rye. Uh, it was only 10% uh, rye, so I, I was actually surprised at how little rye there was, because rye is one of the things that really gives it that kick, uh, mm -hmm. whiskey a kick. 40% uh, alcohol, $70 per bottle. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the interesting thing about this was that it was aged in uh, oak barrels that used to store Okanagan red wine. Uh, and then three of those, so it, it got transferred uh, from barrel to barrel, and then one that used to store cherry port mm -hmm. uh, or some cherry port-like wine because you can only serve or make port in Portugal. 
That's right. I could definitely taste it. I tasted the, you know, kind of wine or cherry hints, and I liked this one. I said that Wyatt was one of my favorites on my tasting sheet. I thought it was spicy. I also really liked the bottle it came in. Um, as somebody who appreciates, you know, the nice aesthetic uh, look of my bottle, um, this was definitely one of my favorites. I think it was my favorite of the evening. Uh, it was the one that I decided to go and get another one of at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote Kicks You in the Teeth classily because it definitely had a bit of a, uh, a kick to it. It, it was strong uh, when I did that kind of uh, whiskey yoga uh, yep. breathing thing that the uh, facilitator, facilitator was yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the lecturer uh, talking about. Uh, it was like almost a little overwhelming and I coughed and I, uh, but it was like a excellent bunch of strong flavors. You could, you know, get the hint of red wine. You could uh, definitely taste a little bit of that cherry on the palate. Uh, and it had a very, very nice, smooth, winey finish. Yeah, I would buy this bottle. It was really good. So that's on the list for me. Yes. <laughs> what was also really good for one particular uh, Georgia teacher was uh, an entry into contract law. I thought this was a fun story. <laughs> this is a great story. I love this story, actually. Um, so this was a lady in uh, Georgia who just really loves reading and apparently really loves reading any document that she comes across. So she ends up purchasing a travel insurance document from Square Mouth Tin Leg Travel. And she reads it. She reads the entire thing. And at the very end, she discovers a secret contest. Yes, pays to read. If you are reading this within the contest period and are the first to contact us, you may be awarded the pays to read contest grand prize of $10,000. Like it literally pays to read here in this case. So she ended up claiming the prize, 10,000 US, and then on top of that, Square Mouth made a further donation to a literacy charity called Reading is Fundamental in the amount of $10,000 and another $5,000 to the high school that this teacher works at. So what a bunch of warm and fuzzies. It's just yeah. like good for Square Mouth. Uh, I, like I have perhaps once in my entire life read a contract uh, with all the fine print from cover to cover. Like the iTunes Terms of Service, I think is uh, a clinically approved cure for narcolepsy, <laughs> uh, sorry, for, uh, for insomnia. Uh, yeah, it'll it, put you right out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like maybe our next drink. Yes, so our next drink, what do we have? It is the Red Fife. Uh, whiskey from Sheringham Distillery in Sook. Uh, wheat and barley, 45%, so a little stronger than your standard uh, standard whiskey. Price to be confirmed. Uh, so this was not in its final packaging bottle. I know you like the, the bottle that things come in, but uh, this was a bit of a, uh, a surprise for, for people. Uh, Red Fife wheat is... A, in particular, a type of wheat that was brought over by Ukrainian immigrants and used to be one of the dominant wheat strains across the prairies until it was uh, replaced by the genetically hardier Durham wheat. Uh, but I, I know you really liked this one. Yeah, I did. This was, I think, my favorite um, one that we tasted at uh, the Whiskey Masterclass. Um, I thought it was delicious. Um, it 
tasted kind of hot and spicy, but then it was very smooth later on. And even though it's not for sale yet, I guess it entered a whiskey competition, the best in Canada whiskey competition. It ended up taking first prize there. Um, so I think it has a pretty bright future ahead of it. And hopefully it's priced reasonably so we can all go out and buy a bottle. Yeah, um, apparently the best place to get these in the city of Vancouver is going to be the, the legacy liquor store mm -hmm. down in the Olympic Village. Um, and that's not uh, knocking any of our other private liquor stores, it's just that legacy uh, in particular has a large section of BC whiskeys and I think they should be well commended for that effort to promote local distillers. Definitely. <laughs> so, heirloom wheats. Uh, there's something old, not quite as old as our next story, the strengthening of protections of heritage and archaeological sites with the updated law uh, coming out of the woods, coming out of the forest ministry. Uh, Doug Donaldson has been updating the protections for BC archaeological sites uh, and our human heritage. Uh, what do you think of this? Yeah, I mean, I had no idea about this. I don't, you know, work in land development or real estate or archaeological endeavors. <laughs> but it's um, interesting to know that these um, particular rules haven't been updated for over 20 years. And from what I can, you know, glean is that the government will now just have enhanced powers to refuse, suspend, cancel permits, which could have consequences for developers um, coming you know to the forefront to develop private public projects and so on and so forth but it also creates this mandatory reporting requirement so I didn't know but I guess that um, developers you know were basically self-reporting archaeological finds in the past yeah so one of the obligations prior to the issuing of permits uh, up until this law was introduced um, was that there had to be an archaeological survey of a site done prior to the permit being issued, and then if there were archaeological artifacts found, then that excavation would have to take place. Uh, but there wasn't a positive obligation to report the discovery of artifacts if they were found during development mm -hmm. and hadn't been uncovered during the survey. Mm -hmm. So this one is going to create a much more... Um, robust. Robust and, like, <laughs> uh, I think series of archaeological surveys in advance because mm -hmm. it, it it like is much better for the uh company who is doing the development to find uh archaeological sites you know in advance and yeah. know what to do about them rather than to be like oh surprise. no we surprise <laughs> we have to shut down the site for you know who knows how long while this excavation can take place during the you know, ever escalating construction season with respect to cost. So mm. uh, I think that like in general, this is a positive thing. I, I am hoping that it is going to just improve the level of archeological surveying that happens mm. before development and not be used to shut down 
developments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure how developers feel about these updates. I'm sure probably not that positively. Any kind of mandatory reporting requirement is usually not looked upon very favorably by the party that must mandatorily report. Um, but it is, of course, in everybody's interest to make sure that heritage sites and archaeological items are properly preserved. So really, at the end of the day, it's all right. Speaking of not looking favorably <laughs> upon things, Northern Grains, I'm so sorry. The Goodridge and Williams Distillery in Delta uh, made a whiskey out of barley and winter wheat, 40.2% and $40 mm -hmm. that I didn't like. Yeah, I mean, it's the cheapest whiskey at the whiskey tasting, um, and I think that that reflected in its taste. I definitely didn't like it either. Um, I wrote beside it that I may consider making a drink with it. Um, it just wasn't worth it for me, not even worth $40. Yeah, so this is the um, outfit that makes neutral vodka, those, those coolers, you know, yeah, coolers. Summertime and, coolers. <laughs> uh, I, and I kind of think that a little more neutral taste of this whiskey would probably have made it taste a little better. I was yeah. searching for exactly what sense it was giving me, and I finally settled on the kind of burnt, uh, caramelized smell of fluorescent lights as they're going out. Yeah, not good. Uh, everybody was debating at the whiskey tasting what type of burning plastic it most smelt like. That's not a great look for you if you're a distiller. You don't want to hear that. <laughs> no. no. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a little unfortunate, uh, but... Uh, we powered through, and so to shall we today. On to Bill 72, which is introduced in the Ontario Legislature, and similarly uh, a bill, uh, a private member's bill in the House of Commons for the right to repair. So what is the right to repair? Yeah, speaking of burning plastic, um, the right to repair deals with electronics and consumers' right to repair those electronics. And it's kind of a novel bill, but I think it's actually very important, uh, particularly for environmental reasons, um, but also just because, you know, people need their electronic devices. We, we are dependent on our cell phones, whether we like it or not um, and they break a lot you know um, if you are a person who's maybe particularly clumsy or her yes. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you've bought uh, an electronic device that is more likely to be smashed if it falls to the ground like the um, Samsung Galaxy phones I mean with the curved edges those things are just constantly on the verge of um, smashing um, it's then, kind of it's kind of annoying that you you like buy this phone with a curved edge, and yeah. then the only way to protect it is to like get a case that completely obscures the edge of the yes. phone. Yes, and then the case doesn't even really actually work every time. You know, even if you drop it at a particular angle, that curved edge just makes it very vulnerable for smashing. So, <laughs> you know, these are things you find out after you buy it. Mm -hmm. I don't have a Galaxy um, Samsung, but I, I do know someone who does. Um, and this person has broken their phone or smashed it just from very minor falls twice over the last three months. And those stack up to some pretty enormous bills for people and lots of people can't afford it. They just can't afford to fix their phone. So they're either using a phone that is broken 
uh, or else you know they end up just ditching the phone altogether and purchasing a new one which is very bad for our environment um it's oh yeah like the the amount of like rare earth metals and and expensive energy intensive processes that yeah. go into making a phone are are just astronomical for well, sure so it's much greener for us to be able to repair these things it's just that affording it's a different story so this bill is going to force brands to provide consumers and electronic repair shops with replacement parts software tools and so forth um, at a fair price and also provide electronic document repair manuals for free and reset any electronic security that could disable the device during diagnostics, maintenance, and repair. So basically, it's just encouraging people to repair their devices, maybe themselves, allowing them access to the tools to do so, and also making it affordable, which is great. And I think this is actually a, a smaller facet of a larger legal battle that's going to be looming over the next couple of, of years, uh, and that is who owns your stuff. Uh, yeah. Is it you or is it the company that uh, is selling it to you? Mm -hmm. Now, Toyota uh, has been claiming that what they are doing when they sell you a Lexus is not selling you the Lexus, but rather selling you the right to hold the Lexus and they still own all the intellectual property and you're not allowed to mess with it inside of that onboard computer. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah. and I, think, I don't like that. I think that's got to be smacked down yeah. by our legislatures in yeah. short order before they take my Camry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing you can take away from me would be the ancient grains, the next whiskey we tasted. I wouldn't complain. If someone took that away. I would take it away from you. I yeah. think we can disagree with it uh, on this one. This is from Divine uh, in Saanich. And it's made with, I love these, barley, kamut, einkorn, and emmer. And smelt. And Don't spelt. forget this. Oh, spelt. Oh, spelt. Yes, spelt. Not, yeah, all right. Yeah, you've got to. Don't see that every day. Yeah, you make make sure that you spelt spelt right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote beside this that it burns my eyes. It's very tingly to my tongue. It smells like fire and it's yellow like pee. <laughs> okay. I don't like it. <laughs> I thought it was cool. I, I'm a big fan of like strong weird flavors. Uh, and so if you are uh, a fan of strong weird flavors, I, I do actually really recommend the Ancient Grains uh, it is a little pricier. Uh, it's almost the most expensive one that we were able to try at $80 per bottle and mm -hmm. 43%. But it comes with like a bit of a book glue, like not quite as booky as that uh, Red Fife that we, we had tried, but like also very smoky, uh, very charcoal, very wood smoke. Uh, and, and part of that comes from the fact that it was done in a smaller cask, uh, which does impart more surface area and so more of that wood flavor to the uh, the whiskey itself. Now, like, apparently that can go either way and either give you a interesting and complex uh, whiskey. And, you know, I, I think that your opinion of it notwithstanding, I don't think you can say that it tasted like toothpicks, which is no. what... Uh, 
It didn't taste like toothpicks. It just didn't do it. It just didn't do it for me. And (laughs) this is actually the one that's the um, non-whiskey whiskey. whiskey. This was the one that was only aged for one year because it was in that smaller cask. So it's actually not technically a whiskey. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I guess it's uh, impressive that it's impersonating a whiskey, but... Oh, yeah. I thought it it was like, well, I think it like if they had left it for three years, Mm -hmm. I think it would be basically undrinkable because it would would be way too strong and way too weird. Now, they went into a long thing about chill filtering and whether things had been chill filtered and Mm -hmm. whether that was a good idea or not. Uh, Basically, chill filtering means that you, you cool it down so that the... Uh, long chain fatty acids kind of come out of the uh, come out of the liquor. Absinthe uh, is something that will have this happen. Like when you put some uh, ice in your absinthe, it will go cloudy. Uh, if you, basically whiskey will do that too, and if you can filter those out uh, after they have uh, condensed uh, after being chilled, uh, some people believe that congeners, the flavor molecules in the whiskey will be taken out by them, uh, by that process. Others do not. It is a large debate. This was non-chill filtered. I say don't put ice in your whiskey anyway, but that's my own personal preference. So, Well, I wouldn't put any ice in this whiskey because I wouldn't drink it. Yeah, fair fair enough. Um, Well, our next story Seals. 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 Here we are. The seal hunt. This is my un- my unpopular opinion where I, I support the seal hunt, but apparently my unpopular opinion is getting a little bit more popular according to these articles in the National Post. So the National Post, the Guardian, uh, they've all been talking about how despite the fact that the European Union, which was the major purchaser of Canadian seal goods, uh, put a ban on Canadian seal products because of a fit of peak and because blood looks really violently dramatic on snow. Like, it it is entirely an image problem. Yeah, it looks horrible when you see these adorable little fluffy white seals being clubbed to death and just covered in blood. It looks like a massacre. It's horrible. However. This this is one of the things. (laughs) One... And I don't really know what the deal is because people are like, yeah, you can't club, we, like you still can't club the white coats. No, you can't. Even though I think like we're allowed to club them at two weeks, but not at two days. So what exactly are we concerned about here? Um, but that's just my opinion, just going one step beyond into the unpopularity, mm-hmm. one upping, you kill them all, the baby seals. Uh, <laughs> um, but... This is actually something that um, uh, a lot of Inuit designers, uh, most of the seal hunt happens in Labrador, uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, where there is a large uh, Inuit population. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are Inuit designers that are are marketing more seal goods to the rest of Canada. Uh, And the restaurant that we were at, Edible Canada, was the first place that I ever tried seal meat. Hmm. I've never tried seal meat. I don't think I would like it, but I guess I don't know until I try it. But as somebody who has very deep roots in Newfoundland, um, I mean, I know how devastating it was when the um, seal bans came in for many communities. 
they were just absolutely destroyed, um, take away their uh, ability to earn an income and earn a living and support their families. And on top of that, destroying their heritage and their traditional way of life. Uh, we now know that it ended up causing just uh, horrible, horrible things to happen in communities that relied on the seal hunt. And actually, in 1985, Greenpeace Canada apologized for the anti-SEAL campaign because they recognized the devastation that uh, occurred culturally, economically, you know, to the human population. <laughs> so, you know, the SEAL hunt uh, in some ways serves a purpose, um, looking at it from an uh ecological um, standpoint as well you know we have to control the seal population in order to protect our fisheries um, but on top of that the seal uh, hunt is something that supports so many people uh, often in marginalized communities um, it's something that people depend on as a way of life and I think it was very horrible what happened with Greenpeace in the 70s so I, I think this is like important to remember is that there isn't an ecological crisis in like the harp seal population. No, there's they, a lot. There's a lot of a them. A lot of them. Uh, there was a cod crisis. There major. continues to be a bit of a cod problem. Oh, major uh, cod they, crisis. They, they can't open the fishery still. They can't. And it's devastating. I mean, again, I come from a very long generation of Newfoundland fishermen and the cod crisis destroyed families, it destroyed communities. Um, it, it is one of the worst things to have happened to Newfoundland and to Canada as well. So don't get me started on that. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, uh, yeah, perhaps a, a story for another day because like it is an interesting legal uh, story. So maybe mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get some screech and cover that. Oh yes, I could probably hook you up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that might go well into a cocktail with perhaps the next whiskey that we tried at our whiskey tasting class Montfort DL 141 from the Shelter Point Distillery in Campbell River now this this was really cool I, I liked two whiskeys above all others it was the Wyatt the cherry one earlier and the this one and I drew hats on their little circles yeah uh, this one was so good actually this one was definitely in my top three, along with the Red Fife and the Wyatt. Mm -hmm. um, this one was similar to uh, like a scotch. It was kind of scotchy to me. I I'm not sure if that's, you know, maybe a lot of whiskey connoisseurs might say, uh, you're completely out to lunch, but I thought it was really good. This one's the farm to flask one. I guess it had never left the farm that yeah. it was grown on. So there are two there are two things. One, I don't think people would say you're out to lunch because they shelled out big bucks for <laughs> Forsyth stills, which are the big Scottish stills that I'm uh, on to something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like copper stills like they didn't uh, cheap out and buy the equivalent thing from uh, Chinese manufacturers, which right. are, are currently dominating the still manufacturing market. Uh, it has been aging for five years. It is unmalted barley. And that is interesting because um, malted, like there's only two places in uh, all of BC that you can get your grains malted. One is the Phillips Brewery in uh, Victoria and then there's a place up in the Okanagan that you can have it done mm -hmm. but they wanted to have that entirely uh, farm to tape farm to flask rather yeah. uh, initiative and 
I, I think it paid off. It, yeah. It actually was very, very reminiscent of the whiskeys we tried last time. Yeah. Uh, in particular, I, I thought, the Lagavulin. Yeah, I really liked it. It was leathery. It was dry. It was strong. It was good. I would buy this. Um, $85 for the bottle. Mm -hmm. um, and I just love the farm to flask concept. I think that's just so cool. So this is a yes for me. So this is done from uh, Leon Witt, who was also the uh, the guy who did the distiller who did the uh, blue color changing gin from mm -hmm. Victoria distilling. Yeah, you can see that at the Empress Hotel in Victoria. It's great. So one of the unfortunate things about this one is that uh, they have not been selling that much to British Columbians. Mm -hmm. They have been uh, realizing that they can make quite a bit of money uh, doing their farm to flask whiskey uh, in their big Scottish Forsyth stills and then shipping them off to China and Japan where a growing whiskey market mm -hmm. uh, has made them very, very popular uh, because they're able to sell at a price point slightly lower than the Scotch uh, whiskeys of, uh, you know, Lagavulin and Laphroaig's Scotland. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the Scotch whiskeys of Scotland as opposed to anywhere else except you have to be from Scotland to be a Scotch whiskey. You do. Yeah. But this one's great and um, I hope they keep more of it in Canada and I hope that uh, our listeners get to try it because it's one of the best ones on the list. So moving forward to our last news bite. Yes, cocktail cops. Uh, so <laughs> basically uh, there is a huge uh, patchwork of liquor laws that uh, exist across Canada. Uh, many of them were written during the <laughs> era immediately after Prohibition in yep. Canada yep. Uh, and are uh, designed to basically protect consumers from the dangers of those evil booze-selling bartenders, yes. even though... Uh, Purveyors of sin. Yes. And here in British Columbia, we have some of the worst liquor laws, to my understanding. Um, and one of the things that I didn't know, because I go into lots of different restaurants here in Vancouver, and I see that nice little mini barrel sitting on the bar that's aging some type of liquor and infusing it with some type of, you know, flavor, herb, whatever. But apparently that's not allowed. It's completely illegal. You cannot do infused spirits or barrel aging. You're not allowed to actually interfere with the alcohol or alter it from the bottle. I didn't know that. Yeah, and it's dumb. Yeah, like, I mean, I get it in the context of not wanting to have, you know, maybe somebody watering down your drink, you know, maybe taking yeah, a bottle of vodka. Don't pouring. mix wood alcohol in with the booze like that. That should make that should be and should still be illegal. I yeah. Can, I can concede that point. Yeah. You know, my drink, sh my Manhattan should make me go blind. No, but, or putting or just putting water in. I mean, they should still get you maybe buzzed, right? Yeah. So we don't want to see the people who are working bars emptying out half of their vodka bottle filling the half of it with water i get where they're coming from but these need to be updated yeah so like i i think that there is an opportunity uh for some more liquor reform in bc i i know that the christy clark liberals uh embarked on a bit of a liquor reform process spearheaded by john yap that came out with i think like 176 recommendations that they dribbled out on Fridays as bad news happened during the week. 
Uh, <laughs> to make and, everyone feel better. But, but now we have happy hour, and I think yes. they should probably get around to legalizing Manhattans. Agreed. Uh, so Agreed. Let's do it. Finally, what might you put in your Manhattan? Would you put a, oh, probably not, no. but uh, <laughs> peated single malt. Uh, this should probably be drank on its own by uh, <laughs> Lowen McKinnon in Surrey. Uh, this is basically Surrey Central Brewing, yeah. um, and it is not a Canadian craft spirit uh, because those uh, need all BC agricultural inputs. Mm -hmm. uh, they decided that there was no way that there was going to be any peat that could compete with the Scottish peat. <laughs> he said, realizing that's a lot of peats. Yep. Yeah. I but don't want to repeat myself. There is some, I guess there was some peat here. Good one. <laughs> there is some peat here, but I wrote down that it was just sad peat. <laughs> Not happy peat. Yeah, I I thought it was, yeah, at the very best, okay. I I was, I don't know, I, I, I don't like the, uh, the downerism on British Columbia peat or BC juniper. I think that I would be very interested in seeing what uh, what it could bring to the whiskey. I it, like if I want to taste the scotch with Scottish peat, mm -hmm. I have the opportunity to go and buy Lagavulin or Laphroaig or um, you know any of the the other. I like Talisker actually. That's that's quite good. But anyway, I digress. This this one um, it's. Had, like there were a lot of phenols in it it tasted a lot or smelled a lot rather like acetone or mm -hmm. like pearl drops or leather conditioner definitely it smelled like getting my nails done <laughs> and that like has its own merits as a smell like it's it not does. an unpleasant smell but it, it definitely like brought forward that like very medical very chemical uh aspect of of the scotch that uh, they were talking about in, in Lagavulin last week, and I didn't like smell nearly as much as I did on this one. Um, but it's just not, uh, it's not a BC craft spirit. And I was really like starting to get into the terroir of, you know, my, my province. And yeah. uh, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, I think that they've kind of missed an opportunity here. I agree. I totally agree. I mean, and at $85 for a bottle, I think your money is better spent on the Montfort or even the Wyatt, um, something else. It's just, it's not really there for me. So I hate to end it on a lackluster note, but really this was a lackluster whiskey for me. But I think uh, in general, we can say that there are some really delicious whiskeys being distilled in British Columbia. Uh, and, you know, while not everyone managed to sell themselves to us, uh, I think that the experimentation should continue because, uh, like, it's an interesting and growing industry. We have almost, and I learned this, almost half the whiskey distilleries in all of Canada are right here in BC. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, so like the big the big players are certainly out east, but uh, the startup from, uh, from the BC craft distilling movement uh, has caused this sort of like efflorescence of distilleries right here at home. So get out to your local liquor store and try 
one of them tonight. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Spirits of the Law, a production of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Uh, I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Sarah Lehman. Thank you very much, and please enjoy responsibly. Good night. (laughs) 